this morning as we, as we move ahead in our study of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, taking the next beatitude that, op- that you, Jesus used to open this sermon, we come to Jesus giving a set of marching orders, if you will, to the people who are with him. What he's been doing in these beatitudes that start his sermon is profiling the kind of person who's with him. Not kinds of people. He's, not, he's giving us eight different distinguishing marks, not of eight different kinds of people, but of eight characteristics of a, a single person, of, of the kind of person who's with him who's found a place and a home in his kingdom. M- many of those marks have focused on the way the person who's with Jesus thinks about themselves, on how, they, on how they look at other people too, in light of who Jesus is and what he's been for them. Now, in this verse, Matthew, 5, chap- Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, we get a sense of the purpose that comes to all those who are with Jesus. He tells us that if you're with him, if you're in his kingdom, then your life has a calling. Your life has a purpose that's bigger than whatever it is you're training for right now. I know a lot of you are training. You're in the early phases of your career. You're building towards something else. Your life is oriented around a purpose that's affected, that, 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 that works into your job, right? What Jesus is going to say this morning is that bigger than whatever it is you're training for, if you're with Jesus, if you're in his kingdom, your life has another purpose. Another calling. He's going to point us to a purpose or a calling that's available to you right now, even if you're struggling with your life. Even if maybe you've finished whatever it is you're training for and you've found that the the grass really isn't greener in the pasture you've been working to get into. If you're struggling with where you are right now, Jesus gives you this morning a purpose that's yours even where you are without anything else about your life changing. It's available to you. Meaning. Purpose. It's a purpose that affects every one of your relationships. It's a purpose that affects every community that you're a part of, from your family to your workplace to your nationality to your place in the world. If you're with Jesus, your life's calling is to be an agent of peace. If you're with Jesus, according to Matthew 5, verse 9, your life's calling, wherever you are, wherever you go, is to be an agent of peace. This morning we want to understand what that means and how we can start to embrace it. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word while I read our text for this morning? This is Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is God's word. You can be seated. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Here, for the first time, Jesus has taken us into a a slightly different image for what it is to be with him. We've been talking a lot about kingdom language, about these beatitudes as describing a citizen of the kingdom Jesus was preaching, the kingdom that he came to build. And we're still talking about that kingdom, but now Jesus adds another layer to it. Did you notice the way he finishes this verse? They shall be called sons of God. Now he's moving our minds and with our minds, our hearts from this focus on citizenship to a focus on the family. To be with him is to be part of a new family. To be with him is to be sons and daughters of God. And what we know from our own experience and just from paying attention to the world and from what we read and from the experiences of our friends that whatever your family of origin is, for good or ill, has a deep, 
and pervasive influence on who you are. Some of you have been trying to outgrow that family of origin influence uh, ever since you realized you had one. Uh, Others of you are thankful for that family of origin influence and the way that God used it to shape you into who you are today. Whatever your story is, though you were affected by that family of origin in some deep ways that maybe you don't even recognize yet. And what Jesus is saying here is that the same holds true when you're with him. Because being with him is like being part of a new family. And being part of that family is to take on a new identity, a new resemblance, a new mark that shows you're with that family. In fact, when he uses this sons of God phrase, he's using a Hebrew shorthand for one who resembles the character of another. So he's not pulling on here, he's not pulling like Paul is elsewhere on the beautiful imagery of adoption and what it is to be welcomed in and embraced as one of the family. That's part of the Bible's story, part of its beauty. That's not really what Jesus is pulling from here. He's talking about sons of, he's using sons of as a way of saying they look like, they resemble the character of, they share the purpose of this thing. Later in Matthew, he's going to use the same phrase a couple other times. People are going to be referred to as the sons of the evil one or the sons of the kingdom or the sons of those who killed the prophets. Not because they literally descended from those who killed the prophets or literally descended from the evil one, but because they look like, they resemble the character of, they take on the family resemblance of the evil one or those who killed the prophets. So when he says that we're sons of God, that the blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God, he's saying that the peacemakers are those who share the character of, those who pursue the same work, of God what he's saying is that children of God will seek the sort of peace that God is making in the world so if we want to understand what Jesus is telling us here if we want to understand it and then start to embrace it start to reflect it then we need to understand what sort of peace God is making our peacemaking will resemble God's peacemaking so what kind of peace is God making in the world and along the way we'll be asking Where does this peace fit in with what I'm doing with my life? How does this purpose Jesus is describing fit into the purposes for which I'm living my life? That's what we want to unpack together. And I want to do it in three steps. Three steps that highlight the peace God is making in the world. The peace we'll join him in if we're sons and daughters of God. Here's the first one. You can follow along on the worship guide. Take notes there if you want to. This outline is listed there for you. Here's the first one. If we're children of peace, sons and daughters of God, if we're the peacemakers Jesus is calling blessed, then what we'll embrace is peace with God because that's the kind of peace that God is making. God is making peace between himself and all of those that he's created who will look to him, embrace his peace, and lay down their arms. The peace that Jesus came to establish is a peace between God and individuals who'd been hostile to him who'd been at war with his design for their lives. The gospel is a story of peace, of a peace established unilaterally by God with people who don't deserve it and wouldn't seek it on their own. There's a lot of places I could take you in the New Testament to show other writers unpacking what Jesus is referring to here in such a short, pithy way. I just want to point you, first of all, to Romans chapter 5. It would be helpful for you to flip over there because I'm going to to point to a couple of things to make sure you know what Jesus has in his mind when he's talking about peacemakers. One of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel comes out in Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses, and it hinges on peace. 
Paul opens this chapter with this proclamation. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from there, he launches into describing what had to happen for us to have peace with the God who made us. All of us in our sin declared a sort of war on God, an insurgency against the king. We choose our own rulers instead of accepting his rule. We make rulers of ourselves, is what it comes down to, instead of accepting his rule over us. But the news of the gospel is that God loves sinners anyway. Jump down to verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a unilateral peace. God shows his love for us. Paul continues a little further down. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still hostile to him, still with nothing for him, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul picks up this same theme in Colossians. You know, I read, I read from this before we celebrated communion. The same theme of peace made with hostile parties. Remember, in him with all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, this is Colossians 1, through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He takes those who were once alienated and hostile, Paul writes, doing evil deeds, and he's now reconciled them by his own body on the cross. Paul is, is describing something that other New Testament writers weigh in on in lots of other places. Something Jesus had in mind when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is in the business of making peace with people who are hostile to him. That's the story of the gospel, of rebellion overcome by love. That's the peace God is making. That's the mission Jesus came for. The rest of the New Testament explains that Jesus, through the cross, took on himself the penalty that our rebellion against God demanded. That in in the cross, his sacrificial death, a death he didn't deserve, that he gave on our behalf, made it possible for us to have peace, for us not to get the judgment our sin deserves, so that we could come to him as those who were welcomed, not as those who were brought to account. He broke down the hostility. That's the message of the gospel. But I know what maybe you're thinking out there. Maybe you're thinking, that sounds fine, but I'm not hostile to him. I don't think of myself as being an enemy of God. Now, granted, I don't think about him all that much. Or his word doesn't necessarily have a huge effect on how I'm living. But I don't dislike him. We just sort of have our own spheres. Maybe you're, maybe you're here considering Christianity this morning and you're weighing whether or not to be with Jesus. You aren't yet, but you think, the very fact that I'm here shows I'm not hostile to him. Why would I come and sing these strange songs and watch these strange rituals and listen to somebody talk about this ancient text if I wasn't, you know, at least friendly towards God, at least open to him. I'm definitely not hostile to him. I wouldn't be here if I were. Let's just say that the God, that the God that is, is the God of the Bible. Let's just, let's just think that way for a minute. Let's just say the God of the Bible is truly God. How do you think of the God of the Bible as he's described in the Bible? 
Don't you, if, to whatever extent you're familiar with the Bible, don't you often find yourself kind of bristling at some of the things he says there or that are said about him? Have you read some of the things in the Old Testament about his judgment of sinners, of people who rejected him? Judgment sometimes of entire nations? Have you read, even in the New Testament, even in the mouth of Jesus, all of his language of, of, of judgment for those who won't embrace the peace he offered? Haven't you read his claims to have absolute authority over you and everyone else? Maybe you've read some of his claims that tell us really clearly that everything he does is for his own glory. That even when he saves people, he does it to prove how glorious his love and patience and grace are. Do you like what you read of God in the Bible? I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say there isn't one of us here who likes everything we read. That we're confronted by an other when we read the the Bible and its portrait of God. Someone who is not us, who doesn't always think like we do, who challenges what we think and, and love about ourselves. Not one of us likes what we read all the time. That's because we're hostile to him in mind. Or think about Think about how you choose to live, the choices that you make. Let's just say the God of the Bible is the God that is. Makes it very clear how we're supposed to love other people. That we're not supposed to gossip. That we're not supposed to be quick to take offense. That we're supposed to be long-suffering and merciful, even when people don't deserve it. That we're not supposed to indulge all of our desires that we're supposed to see even, even things like our sexuality as given to us by God to be used in a way that honors Him. Think about the choices the Bible calls us to make and now think about the ones you make. How often do you choose to live either in outright rebellion against what He says or at best in neglect of what He says as if He doesn't have the right to command? Or think about your own feelings, your affections. Let's say the God of the Bible has done what the Bible says he's done for you. That he has given up the thing most precious to him in all the world, his own son's life, to make peace. Let's think about his promise to give you an inheritance that will never fade, that can't rust, that can't be stolen, that's as secure as his rule over everything that is. And now let's think about how you feel towards him in your day in and day out. How often are your affections towards him cold at best? How often have you felt angry that he hasn't given you what you wanted? How often have you been quick to judge his promises based on what you're getting out of life? And to judge that he can't give you all the things he's promised if he hasn't also given you this thing you wanted. Is it not true that we're hostile to him in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills? Friends, until we recognize that we do have an embedded hostility towards God, we won't be able to see and embrace and love the fact that he has made peace with us. Until you recognize the enmity that's in you, separating you from him, you won't be able to lay it down through repentance 
And repentance is the only way anyone ever comes to God and enjoys his peace. Repentance is a political term. It's a laying down of arms. It's a pledge of allegiance to a new Lord, a new master. And until you recognize you haven't embraced his rule over you, that in fact you've been hostile to him, you won't be able to with eyes open and hearts that are sensitive embrace the peace that he's offered you. That peace looks like repentance. And when you do, Friends, when you do recognize your own hostility to him, and when you lay that down in repentance and accept the gift of peace that he gave through Jesus, then your life takes on a new calling. Then, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what he's saying is, blessed are those who take this peace that I've made with you to others to whom I offer this same peace. Your your job description now in life no matter what your job for pay is no matter what's filling your days no matter what stage of life you're in your job is to be a peacemaker between God and those who are hostile to him your job is to bring those warring parties together on the terms of peace that God has made possible in Jesus so your job becomes like that of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 in Christ Paul says God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. That's what we've just covered. Now watch where Paul takes it. Takes it to our role. Jesus has this in mind in Matthew 5, 9. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Listen to Paul's language. We implore you. His whole heart, his whole life is bound up in offering this peace to those who are hostile towards God. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Friends, if you're with Jesus, that is your script. That's what your life is for. To try your best every opportunity you get to see peace made between God and those who are hostile to him. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's saying, blessed are those who embrace peace with God themselves and then implore others to do the same. And that'll be true for you because it's in the gene pool. Because it's what God does, even at the cost of his own son. Here's another aspect of the peace. That's peace with God. If we're sons and daughters of God, though, we'll also seek peace with others. If you think about the peace that God made in Christ as as the site where a pebble hits the surface, the unbroken surface of a lake, then you think about the next things we're going to talk about is the ripples that come from that site. That impact changes its surroundings, right? So peace with God in Christ, blam, hits hits the surface of the water. Ripple number one, in the way the New Testament talks about it, is peace among people who otherwise wouldn't, be, wouldn't have very much for one another. Peace among those who were bound by Jesus. Peace among those whose identity is now much more centered on him than on anything else that was true about them before. This is all over the New Testament. We don't have the time to go into all of it. I want to point you just to, to, to show you that this is what Jesus has in mind. I want to point you to a place later on in the Jesus' own sermon to show you this is where he's headed. So later in Matthew chapter 5, in the ser- later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses this same phrase, sons of, sons of God, only this time he says, sons of your father. 
in another place to show you will act like this if you're sons of the Father. If you're sons of the Father, this is what your life will look at. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and following. And in that section, his point is, if you're sons of your father, then you're going to love your enemies. He starts out saying, you've heard that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a big part of the law. One of the most important things that, are, that, that should be true for those who are with God. But I say to you, you're supposed to love your enemies. He goes on. That if you're sons of the father, you may be sons of your father in heaven. What's your father in heaven like? Well, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He even shows love towards people who don't love him, who reject everything that he's called them to. He still shows love on them. If you love those who love you, Jesus continues, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? That's not distinctive. Everybody greets people who like them. Everybody loves being loved and tends to respond to that love with with some sort of affection. That's not distinctive. What's distinctive, what shows you're with God, what shows you're his children, is when you love those who are your enemies. When you find peace with those who don't deserve it. This is all through the New Testament. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 21 later this afternoon. That's where Paul describes the beauty of the gospel and then says what God was doing there is dividing the wall of hostility that separates people from each other and making in its place one new man formed around Jesus. Now, if this is what God wants to see, if this is one of his first tier goals in sending Jesus, then this is what his children will be about. We'll be driven to see people reconciled to one another. We won't be able to rest until they are. What does it mean for us that God is building peace between people? That one of his top priorities in sending Jesus was to make peace between people who are set apart from each other? It means two things. Personally, It means we have to be at peace with others as far as it affects us. We have to be at peace with others, especially in our local church community. We can't be with him. We can't be bearing his family resemblance and do or say things that escalate conflict. Can't do it. It's not even okay to stay at odds with somebody. It's definitely not okay to escalate conflict. It's not even okay to just sort of let the hostility simmer under the surface, unaddressed. We talked about this a good bit a couple weeks ago when we talked about mercy, so we don't need to rehash it all here. I'll just say that the things Jesus calls us to earlier in Matthew 5, things like meekness that's not easily offended or mercy that, that gives people something other than what they deserve, those characteristics become easier when peace becomes more beautiful to us. When what we want, when our aim of life is to make peace, then, then we're going we're gonna to find an easier time being merciful. Because we know mercy is a path to peace. We're going to find it easier not to react quickly to something somebody does or says to us. Because we know this is a path to peace. And what I really want is peace. We have to love peace more than we love drama. We have to love peace more than we love respect. We have to love peace more than we love anything else. When we do, 
It gets a lot easier to have mercy, to be meek, to be poor in spirit. So the question is, friends, where do you need to seek peace this morning? What relationships are not what they need to be? What sting from a word, harsh word said are you still carrying with you that's making it harder for you to engage somebody that you're in covenant with? Today is the day to lay that down. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you're a son of God, a daughter of God, you don't get to hold on to a hostility Jesus died to put an end to. Don't get to do that. Where do you need to seek peace? I said it it means a couple of things. If we're going to be joining God in the peace that he's building, one thing is, is this personal one. We personally have to take responsibility for seeing peace in our relationships. We can't tolerate there being a lack of peace in any relationship as far as it depends on us. We can't control other people, but as far as it depends on us. But it also affects our calling in life. So it affects us personally, but, but this, this priority on peace affects our calling in life. And here's what I mean. We're not just talking about a peaceable disposition that's not easily provoked. Here he's talking about peacemakers, about people who are actively engaged in bringing peace, who see their job as trying to help other people who are not at peace come together. Part of your job, if you're with him, is to seek peace where it doesn't exist. Sons and daughters of God do everything they can to help other people come to peace. And they never do anything to stand in in the way of it. Friends, here's what that means. Let me take it down another level. Here's what you can't do. As a Christian, you cannot endear yourself to someone at the expense of someone else. No matter how good it feels to be the one who gets it. No matter how good it feels to be the one who's not like the rest, who's worthy of friendship, of trust, of safety, of respect. No matter how good it feels to be taken in on the inside by someone because someone else is being pushed to the outside. No matter how good that might feel, you cannot bite that apple. Because if you're with Jesus, you care more about peace than you do about that person feeling warm and fuzzy towards you. You can't tolerate having somebody closer tied to yourself than they are to the community at large. There is no peace for the believer apart from the peace of the whole. We can't rest if our community around us isn't peaceful. So just because somebody has brought us in doesn't mean we can stop there if they're pushing someone else away. Now, that means when someone comes to you with a problem, when someone comes to you with a problem they have with someone else, you owe them more than empathy. Empathy can be the easy part, especially when it's somebody else they're mad at. But if you're with Christ, if you're a son or a daughter of God, you owe them more than empathy. What you owe them is also counsel and help to see the other person differently. What you owe them as a peacemaker is an attempt as as well as you can to help them see where that other person might be coming from to help them go towards that other person to find out for sure. To help them lay down their arms and go to the other person 
with the genuine desire to be reconciled. What you must never do is pour gas on the fire, someone else's hostility towards another member of our community. Can't do it if you're with Jesus. What you must do is take up the cross of getting involved to help them find peace. That is a cross. That is painful. Sometimes it'll mean that you, that you, that you get some of the mess on you. It can mean that you'll be misunderstood. It can mean that you'll be that you'll be uh, identified with things that the person doesn't like, even when you don't feel or, or do or think the things that they think you do. It may mean that, that you'll get caught up in the conflict. It's at the very least going to mean a lot of work to avoid prejudice, to, to try your hardest to see where both people are coming from. And you might end up failing. Bringing people together is exhausting work. It will take you to the edge of your ability and way beyond. It is messy. It's inefficient. And it's often, it often seems unproductive. But it is your father's work. And that means it's your work. And it's good and beautiful work to do. It's work all Christians do. It's what we do. If we're sons and daughters of God. The first promise in our church covenant. That members sign. When we join our church. Is a promise to work. And pray. For the unity of the spirit. And the bond of peace. Those are words are straight from Paul. In Ephesians chapter 4. We know that everything else we want. To be true about our life. As a, as a body of believers. Starts with our unity. And the bond of peace. We will work at it. We will pray for it. And that means, friends, I'm especially talking to you as members of our church now, your job is to make sure with with whatever opportunities God gives you, our church is peaceful. And here's the last thing. I want to just close by pointing you to one more layer. Talk about peace with God. Talk about peace on earth. Talk about peace with others. Those two are the two things Jesus has most in his mind based on where he goes later in the sermon. But I want to conclude by pointing you towards another layer to the story of peace as it plays out in the whole scope of the Bible's message. Jesus has mostly in mind the peace that he is making between God and hostile individuals. And then the peace that those people have with one another once they're with him. But if you, if you zoom out and if you follow the, the, the course of this peace word as it plays out in the, in the story of the Bible, you find that there is a whole other macro level of peace that God is committed to establishing. A peace that's defined by wholeness, by flourishing, by the absence of fear, by the absolute, total absence of violence. It's a, it's a theme in the prophets. It's one of Isaiah's fa- favorite themes. Early on in Isaiah's prophecy, he prophesies a time when people will take their spears and hammer them into pruning hooks. They'll take their sword and they'll hammer them into... They're they're, they're making these things into, into instruments of flourishing, of cultivation, instead of instruments of death. Then in chapter 9, one of, the cha- one of the passages we read at Christmas, the, one of the first descriptions of the Messiah who is coming, he, he says, Isaiah says, One day, every boot 
of the tramping warrior in battle. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his government and of peace there will be no end. God is building a world in which there will be no violence at all. God gave up his son's life to make that world possible. Now, if that's a world he's going to have to build, that isn't a world he's asked us to build in our power. It's a world that's coming, that nothing can stop, but that only his power can deliver. But even though it isn't our work to make this peace, and even though I believe in the, in the interim while we wait on Jesus to return, there is an, a time for a necessary use of force. At the very least, what Jesus means here is that those who are sons and daughters of God will never, ever be callous, be lighthearted, be casual about war in the way that they talk about sports or politics or fashion. It will mean that even if we believe war can be necessary sometimes, we never celebrate it. Sometimes we think cemeteries are necessary. Neonatal ICUs are necessary. We don't celebrate their existence. We mourn over them. They belong to a world that God is replacing. They belong to a world in which they will have no place. And if we're Christians, our hearts belong to that world. That means we don't thump our chests. We aren't warmongers. We don't relish the chance to see others blown up. We hate violence. And we do what we can in our reach, in our communities, to make it unnecessary. While we look to the day when God's promises come to pass, and we do that because Christians love their Father. And when you love someone, and you see what that someone is invested in doing with their life, when you see what that someone has, has given so much to achieve, then you can never stand in the way or even in your heart celebrate that which this someone you love has committed to ending forever. You can't be detached or indifferent about whether they achieve what they want. Your heart is invested too. You're rooting for them. You're jumping in wherever you've got anything to offer. God is going to build a new world in which there is only and always peace. And all will lie down and sleep and none will make them afraid because no one will ever hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. That's God's promise. That day is coming. Our hearts must belong to that day. Father, we, uh, we ask you to help us 
to long for. Not just talk about, not just sing about, not just even pray for, but to genuinely long for. A realization of the peace you've promised to make. We want to see it in our hearts as we relate to you. We want to see it in our friendships as we relate to each other. And we want to see it on earth as far as the the farthest reaches of the globe. We want to see peace. We don't always know what our role is in that. What we're praying to you for is hearts that long for it so that actions that are meaningful will follow. Help us to love what you love. To hate what you hate. To reflect your beauty of your character so that we will be called sons and daughters of God. We pray that in your name. Amen.